Let me ask you to open up your Bibles to the book of Romans in chapter 15. Uh, the book of Romans in chapter 15. I ran out of time last Sunday. Uh, we were looking at the first three verses of this chapter, and I just ran out of time. And so this morning, as we prepare for the Lord's table, uh, we're going to come back to these first three verses. And these verses are worth more of our time. Uh, as I was preparing this week, it occurred to me that God was caring for us, perhaps, by bringing us back to these verses once more. Uh, in last week's sermon, we were going to spend maybe 10 minutes on verse 3 instead. Now we get to spend about a half an hour. And I think this is God's goodness to us because we need to hear and we need to receive and we need to feel the, the message of that verse, I think, in particular. So let's read again Romans 15 verses 1 through 7. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. This is what we find here in the Word of God. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. What have we already seen? We've seen that these seven verses are a continuation of the same theme as chapter 14. If we were separating the book of Romans into chapters, we probably would have ourselves included these verses with chapter 14 and started chapter 15 at verse 8. And what has Paul been teaching? He has been teaching that we should be willing to deny ourselves in order to better love our brothers and sisters. We should be willing to deny ourselves freedoms that we have in Christ rather than put a stumbling block before our fellow Christians. The message here is don't be a cause of temptation and sin to your fellow believers. Be a help to one another's holiness and not a hindrance to one another's holiness. That's the refrain that has come into my mind uh, so often recently. And in so many situations, this is what the Spirit, I think, has been bringing into my mind. This, this question, in this situation, when I'm responding to this person, is the way I'm going to respond going to 
help this person's holiness or be a hindrance to that person's holiness? I dare say that if we considered that question and considered each other, certain realities would be true. We'd find ourselves more committed to attending our church services because when we attend, it is an encouragement to the holiness of the people around us. I think we'd find ourselves on our knees more often in prayer for one another because that's how we help each other's holiness. If we become concerned with this great calling to be a help to each other's holiness, uh, biblical language, to build one another up, I think we'll be checking in on each other more. Uh, Real conversations happening more often. I think we'd be working more diligently to meet each other's needs. Mount Hermon, this is a church where this grace is already happening among us, but As we consider this question, we want this grace to abound in us. Let us be concerned with the endeavor of verse 2, the quest to build each other up. Don't get your definition of that from the culture where building each other up means telling each other nice things, flattering each other, increasing their self-esteem. That is not what Paul's talking about. Building each other up means helping each other become more like Jesus. That's what love does. Love helps your brother and your sister become more like Jesus. So let's be concerned with that for one another. And then may that have ripple effects far beyond this church and far beyond this generation. Now, the first question we asked about these verses was, who are the strong of verse 1? Because Paul says there, we who are strong have an obligation. And we saw from Romans 14 and we saw from 1 Corinthians 8, we know that who Paul has in mind is those Christians who have been given more knowledge and more understanding and are seeing the world through a more truly consistent Christian worldview. The weak Christian isn't necessarily a new believer. The weak Christian is simply a believer who has been perhaps slow to receive Christian truth or a believer who is just having a harder time coming to understand Christian truth or they just may not have been well taught. And so they they don't have a Christian worldview. This might be a Christian who truly loves Christ and trusts Christ and, and has a zeal to follow Christ, but the zeal is accompanied by a great deal of worldly thinking. That's the weak Christian. At least on certain matters, this Christian is still thinking in unchristian ways, and unbiblical ways. This can look very different, different ways, but let me use a different example than last week. So a, a more modern example this time. Maybe there is a Christian in a church who is convinced that watching television is sinful. Uh, This Christian used to watch all sorts of bad things on TV, and now they've been saved, and they've become convinced that the whole notion of TV is wicked. This person remembers how bad TV was for them when they were an unbeliever, and now they're thinking Christians are to be a people of the word. Televisions, they're they're wicked. They are not to be watched. 
Now, that's actually an unbiblical worldview. The Christian worldview does say we should only think about things that are true and honorable, just, admirable, praiseworthy. We shouldn't feast our eyes and our minds on false messages. Uh, We shouldn't feast our brains on shows that teach wicked ideas. But the Bible would not condemn watching television as a sin. And that's because everything in creation begins with God. And creation was pronounced good. And all technologies are part of man's God-given calling to cultivate the earth and to bring goods from it. 1 Timothy 4, 4 through 5 is our principle here. Everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So a technology in and of itself is not evil, though any technology can be used for good or for evil. And so the Christian worldview would say that watching television in moderation for the glory of God is not sinful any more than using any other technology is sinful. In fact, TV has been used for great good in certain circumstances, but certainly watching shows that are immoral in their content or message would be wicked. So you you have a a strong Christian who has more understanding, who who is bringing a Christian worldview to this issue, and you have a weaker Christian who is not bringing a Christian worldview to this issue, and so their just gut reaction has been to say, TV is evil, if you own a TV, you're sinning. And what is Paul's command to the strong Christian? We saw two answers. The strong Christian is to bear with the failings of the weak Christian, The strong Christian is to be patient and forbearing and kind to the weak Christian in this matter. And then second, the strong Christian is to pursue what will build up his brother rather than what will please himself. So maybe the weak Christian drops by the strong Christian's house and the World Series is on. And it's game seven. But this believer knows that his house guest is grieved by just the fact that the television is in the room. And all the more that it's on. For the sake of his brother, so as not to discourage him, this believer may well turn his television off. Uh, Whatever decision he makes, here's Paul's point. His motivation must be not what pleases himself, but what will be best for his brother's faith. So you're in that situation. This person comes to your house. You're all into game seven on the World Series. You have to make that decision. Do I turn my TV off? Do I not? Paul says, here's the thing to keep in mind. It's not what pleases you. It's what builds up your brother. Let that guide your decision. In a Christian marriage, we taught last week, husband and wife must often submit to one another's conscience. The husband says, let's take the kids to this movie. The wife says, I'm not sure that movie is appropriate. Does the husband insist on his way just because he wants to see the movie? That's pleasing yourself. Or does he submit to his wife's conscience not wanting to put her in a situation where she'll feel like she's sinning? 
Remember, if Romans 14, what Romans 14 said, if she is doubting whether it's right or wrong, and yet she does it anyway, it's wrong. Don't put her in that situation. Now, here was our final question that we didn't get to last week. How does verse 3 encourage us to obey these commands? We, we have these commands. Bear with the failings of the weak. Please your neighbor rather than yourself. Build them up. And to encourage us, Paul points us to Jesus in verse 3. And how does the connection work? How, how does verse 3 give us encouragement? So look at verse 3. For, because, here's why you should do what I've just told you to do, Paul says. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now in some ways this is an astounding verse. Because if I was going to point you to the example of Jesus, I would probably talk about something from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. I would probably quote from the Gospels. Well, Paul did not have the Gospels at his disposal. They probably hadn't been written yet. But he had met the disciples who had walked and talked with Jesus. He knew the things Jesus had said. He knew the stories of what Jesus had done. Already in this letter to the Romans, Paul has quoted direct quotations from Jesus that are now in the four Gospels. But Paul does not quote from there. To point us to the example of Jesus, he quotes from the Old Testament. He actually quotes from a psalm written many, many hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth. Paul quotes from Psalm 69, verse 9. It's just a reminder to us that the Old Testament matters and that the Old Testament is about Jesus. And if you want to better understand and love your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, then yes, read the Gospels. <laughs> Know your Gospels. Know your Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But don't just read the Gospels. Read your Old Testament. The whole point of those 39 books is to help you understand the significance and the importance and the character and the mission of your Lord Jesus Christ. And so the psalm which Paul quotes, Psalm 69, it's clearly a messianic psalm. In other words, while the entire Old Testament points to Jesus, there are some portions of the Old Testament that are speaking directly and explicitly about the Messiah. And Psalm 69 is one of those portions. In fact, the New Testament quotes Psalm 69 ten times in reference to Jesus. Uh, just a couple of examples. John tells us that Jesus drove money changers out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. Jesus poured out the coins and overturned the tables. And he said to those selling pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And John says, quote, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Where was that written? Well, it was written about the Messiah in Psalm 69. All four gospel writers tell us that while Jesus was on the cross, 
Just before he breathed his last, a sponge filled with sour wine was lifted up to his mouth. And that was the fulfillment of a messianic prophecy in Psalm 69, verse 21. For my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. But notice what Paul quotes from Psalm 69. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So this is the Messiah speaking to his father. If you have a red letter Bible where the words of Jesus are in red, this should be in red in the Psalms, in the Old Testament. Because these are the words of Christ. He says that the reproaches of people against God have fallen onto him. In other words, the hatred and the hostility and the enmity that people have towards God was spin out on Christ. They hate God, but they can't reach God. But here's Christ. And so why was Jesus rejected by so many in his day? Why was Jesus mocked and opposed and schemed against and unjustly prosecuted and tortured and ultimately killed? It was because he revealed to them the Father. Jesus bore the Father's image. He was light in the darkness and darkness hates light. We know that all people by nature are at enmity with the true and holy God. That's Romans 8, 7. But what has God to fear from men? Here's natural man with enmity in his heart towards God. But what can man do to God? They can shake their fist at the heavens, but but man cannot hurt God. Let man do everything he can to try and hurt God, attack God, to remove God from his throne. Psalm 2, God laughs. He laughs at that because it's ridiculous. Man cannot harm God. I I picture a little kid trying his hardest to swing at somebody, punching at the man, but, but the man's just holding his hand on the kid's head and the kid just can't reach. But in Jesus Christ, God became a man. And in Jesus Christ, God became vulnerable. That is, the God who cannot suffer. And the God who cannot be attacked. The God who cannot receive any harm from man's reproaches suddenly became reproachable. And Jesus bore on himself the hatred that man has towards God. He allowed himself to be publicly mocked. He allowed himself to be arrested and put on trial by the very creatures that he made out of nothing. He allowed himself to be smacked and punched, skin ripped off his back, the thorns pressed into his brow, the spit of Roman soldiers running down his chin. Jesus bore the reproaches of man towards God. And Paul says in our verse that Jesus did that instead of pleasing himself. 
In other words, rather than remaining only the Son of God in heaven, the second person of the Trinity, free from all the sufferings and hardships of this world, the Son of God chose to bear all this, and He bore it for the glory of the Father, and He bore it for the salvation of sinners. Rather than choosing to please Himself, He came and bore the reproaches of men against God on Him. I can imagine some Gentile believers in the church in Rome. They're almost feeling ashamed that they might be seen as weak or cowardly if they put away the meatloaf when eating with their Jewish brothers or sisters who have decided that eating meat is evil. Maybe some Gentile believers were were making fun of those Jewish believers because they wouldn't eat meat or they wouldn't drink wine. And, And now if these Gentile Christians, in an act of love, put away the meat and put away the wine when dining with their Jewish brothers and sisters, maybe they too are going to be mocked. But better to be mocked while loving your brother than to be among the mockers. So this word, reproaches, you see the word reproaches here, it refers to a person being reviled, shamed, outwardly condemned by others without deserving it. So here's an important question for us. Are you willing to be slandered for the sake of people in this room? Are you willing to be ridiculed Mocked, shamed, and reviled as you make decisions that will help the holiness of your brother or sister. It can happen. So often in this world, the rumor mill can get started. People can think very badly of someone without knowing all the facts. And if you stand with them, if you seek to love them, if you make decisions to care for them and outwardly deny yourself for their sake, you can be lumped right in with them in the same rumors. The reproaches meant towards them, suddenly they're on you. Are you so committed to loving the people in this room and in this church? And are you so committed to helping the holiness of your brothers and sisters that you would sacrifice your reputation and maybe more for their sake? Now you might have a question about this verse and about Paul's teaching here in this passage. How do we square Paul's teaching that Christ did not please himself with Hebrews 12, 1 through 2? Because there we are told that Jesus did all that he did for the joy that was set before him. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, listen to this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
So which is it? Is this a contradiction? Did, did Christ not please himself, as Paul says in our passage, or did Christ come and live and suffer and die for the joy that was set before him? Which, which is it? And this is really important because here is where we find the secret of self-denial. The answer is that Jesus did not please himself, but denied himself in order that he would obtain the joy that was set before him. In other words, Jesus denied himself comfort and ease and pleasures of all kinds that he might fulfill his calling. Jesus denied himself that he might run the race his father had given him to run, a race of serving others and loving others and ultimately dying for sinners. But he denied himself in the present because there was a great prize in the future. Jesus was working for the day when all his people would be gathered in, saved and glorified, and he would dwell with them forever in heaven for the glory of God. Jesus did not please himself so that in the end he would have, not just as God, but now as man, pleasures forevermore. So you think about the Olympic athlete. How much do they deny themselves? How much do they not please themselves as they train? But it's because there's a prize ahead. There's a, a greater joy, a greater reward that they're aiming for. And so this is how it is with us. Do not please yourself, but work for the day when you will be part of a people in heaven experiencing the greatest pleasures ever. A kind of divine, heavenly joy that makes earthly pleasures look like trifles. Find the strength and the will to deny yourself today for the sake of your brother and sister and for the glory of God by looking to the joy that has been set before you. This is not heaven. This life is not meant to be heaven. But by our self-denial today, we are not only helping ourselves, but others prepare for heaven. Okay, so let's bring it back to, to brass tacks here. The overall teaching is that we should be willing to deny ourselves for the sake of our fellow Christians. And this is difficult because everything in your flesh cries out for you to live for your own pleasure. And the chief message of the world around you right now is that you should do what makes you happy. You should follow your heart. You should listen to your desires. You should treat yourself. You've got to be you. You've got to do what's right for you. You've got to serve yourself. You've got to live for yourself. That's the message of the world. And it's a false message with false promises because you were not made to live for yourself. And so if you try to live for yourself, if you try to live a life of pleasing yourself today, you will find your heart hardened, you will find your soul turn in on itself, and you will become an even more distorted version of what God made us to be in the garden. And you will find yourself living in disappointment. 
So don't listen to these false messages, but by practice, by denying yourself for the sake of others over and over, build that self-denial muscle and let us grow in the way of Christ. I'll close with this. Mount Hermon, instead of pleasing himself, Jesus willingly endured the reproaches of those who hated God. He was willing to suffer and die for his father and for the calling that God had given him. Can we not sacrifice various temporary pleasures for the glory of God and the sake of our brothers and sisters? Certainly if you drink wine, can't you sacrifice wine with your dinner for the calling of loving your brother or sister and building them up? That's the argument. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. Look at what Christ was willing to endure. Look at how great was the sacrifice that Christ made. Can't you sacrifice your meatloaf? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. Look at what Christ gave up for you. Is there anything that you wouldn't give up for the sake of your brother or for your sister? We're Christians. That means we're called to follow Jesus. Let us follow Jesus even in this. Amen? Let's pray.